Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Don't Fear the Thief. It's a guest essay by Pastor Pam Fickenshire. Pam is a pastor of Edina Community Lutheran Church in Edina, Minnesota. She blogs about the lectionary ministry in parenting at her blog called pastorpam.typepad.com. Her essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 28, 2010, the second Sunday in Lent, in our Journey with Jesus series that we're calling Our Women Amazed Us, Seven Women Authors Reflecting on the Seven Weeks in Lent. This week, Don't Fear the Thief, by Lutheran pastor Pam Fickenshire. The metaphor of a wilderness journey for Lent has a lot of biblical resonance, of course. From the Israelites' wilderness school after slavery in Egypt to Jesus' 40 days before he launches his ministry, the rocky places outside the Holy Land cities are the thin places where the spiritual realities take concrete form. But really, almost any wilderness journey will do as a metaphor for why we need Lent. Those of us who take an occasional trip to wild places know that these places can be life-giving, but you wouldn't want to live there. They aren't particularly good places for perfectionists either. Because no matter how well you pack, once you arrive, you nearly always find that you either forgot something, some essential item, or that you really should have left a few more things behind. As one friend put it to me this week, I like the idea of Lent. It's the execution of it that I struggle with. The inability to quote-unquote do Lent well can be a great excuse to not enter into the wilderness at all. True wilderness has to be protected these days. Isle Royale National Park, for example, is one such place. It's an island in the middle of Lake Superior. Its chief treasures are populations of moose and wolves that coexist in an ever-changing balance. Most of the year it serves as a research center for biologists, cut off from tourists by ice and snow. In the summer, it takes a plane or a long boat ride to get there. Once there, you must travel by foot or kayak if you want to see more than the very edges of the island. Evidently, there are enough campers, though, that the local fox population has gotten very accustomed to human beings and their gear. For anyone who's forgotten all the old folk songs about the fox's reputation, there are signs around the campground to remind them. One of them reads, How far can you hike with one boot? The fox doesn't have the fearsome reputation wolves have in human lore. They are certainly not the scariest creatures you could encounter, but they can put a serious dent in your backpacking plans if you don't pay attention. Go tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way. 
because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in calling King Herod that fox. On the one hand, he was acknowledging the reality that Herod could, with a simple decree, put a halt to Jesus' ministry. Already he had brought John the Baptist to a quick and ugly end. But calling Herod a fox was also placing him in the category of the annoying petty thief, clever and capable, but finally not terrifying. Jesus is no longer in preparation mode. He is headed to Jerusalem, shorthand for a showdown with the powers of evil. And in the meantime, he's preaching, healing, eating with sinners, and proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The greatest danger, Jesus knows, is not one that Herod or any other worldly authority would bring, but the danger of being diverted from his mission. That mission is the proclamation that God's kingdom is at hand, available to all, including those his society has written off, widows, debtors, sinners, tax collectors, and little children. His devotion to his mission is, in fact, a fierce maternal love for those who most need to hear this message. If sticking to his brood, these lost and little ones, makes him more vulnerable to the likes of foxes like Herod, then so be it. It's a truism now that ours is an age of fear and anxiety. Whether it be terrorism or further economic decline, we are a people who are assaulted daily with the message that everything might fall apart. And in some cases, the messengers are right. They do fall apart. As poet Adrian Rich once wrote in an Atlas of the Difficult World, it only takes a little bit of ice on a road or a few cells dividing out of control to steal away our loved ones. We become so accustomed to the daily litany of what might destroy us that we might not even notice the way the headlines seep into our consciousness as we lock our doors, hold our purses closer on the street, and never let our children out of our sight. We can collect these stories of loss as warning signs, constantly telling us which paths not to go down, until finally we are stuck in our safe zones, limiting our activities, our relationships, our sharing of resources with each other. We could spend so much time guarding our health, our possessions, our safety, that we miss the point of traveling this life at all. But if Jesus' life is our model, we dare not imagine that the safe path is always the faithful one. By prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, Lent calls us to confront head-on those things which stand in the way of answering God's call. Our greed, our fear, our idolatry of temporary things. The practices of Lent can be reductive, such as a temporary fast from those things that we know we can, that can get in the way. Like a good backpacking trip, they teach us that we really do not need that much. 
But two of the three Lenten disciplines are additive. More time with God. More generosity to our neighbors. No matter, no matter how you look at it, attention to these matters is rarely safe for the status quo. In my own life, it has been more useful to collect the stories of those who, against all odds, hike on with one boot. The foxes of this world have stolen away treasure, health, reputation, sometimes even loved ones. They are the couples who, one blind and one lame, still find their way to church together. There are the elderly women who have lost husbands and children, yet still give themselves over to loving new strangers that walk into their lives. There are those who have undergone job loss after job loss, yet still give generously to those who have less. They are people hobbled by illness or addiction, who still manage to get out of themselves and truly give to others. They are Christians who have been told by the institution that they are not welcome because of their sexuality or their color, and yet have said in essence with the disciples, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no doubt that the journeys of these folks are more difficult than my journey, but for them following Jesus brings joy despite the risks. Jesus is so certain of his mission that even kings appear to be no more than foxes. Unclean, dog-sized carnivores who cannot have the last word. The last word, Jesus says, will be the accomplishment of his mission. The final evidence that God's kingdom is at hand. And even death itself will not get in the way of that. How far can you hike with one boot? All the way to Jerusalem. All the way to the cross. And after that, all the way to the empty tomb. And now for further reflection, two questions. What Lenten experiences are reductive for you? And secondly, which ones are additive. Don't fear the thief. A guest essay by Lutheran pastor Pam Fickensher. For books this week, I review a memoir called Lit by Mary Carr, New York Harper, 2009, 386 pages. In two previous memoirs, Mary Carr, born in 1955, described growing up with a psychotic mother who packed a pistol, nearly drank herself to death, wielded a butcher knife at her two children, and married seven times. The first book, The Liar's Club, in 1995, covered her childhood days in a small town near Port Arthur, Texas. And then the memoir Cherry from the year 2000 treated her adolescent years. Both volumes enjoyed long rides on numerous bestseller and best book lists. In an interview with the New York Times, Carr describes her third volume, Lit, a memoir, as, quote, 
My journey from black belt sinner and lifelong agnostic to unlikely Catholic. End quote. Mary Carr combines self-effacing humor, unusual candor, and brilliant Texas trash talking to narrate the psychic carnage that she inherited from her deeply dysfunctional family. How to keep from morphing into mother. Lit begins with a drink and drug fueled period in California after high school, and then two years in college before she dropped out, but which also included a professor who, in the mysteries of fate, became a lifelong force for good. An improbable marriage to a man who was her polar opposite lasted eight years and produced a son. But divorce, penury, endless therapy, repeated relapses, and hospitalization in a psychiatric ward for persistent suicide ideation all followed. Quote-unquote, saturated in shame, Carr's long road to salvation, both literal and figurative, began in an AA meeting in a church basement. Her moment of clarity came when she crashed her car, stumbled home, and her husband welcomed her at the door by saying, You smell like a bum. Her sad and sordid tale leads to what Carr calls her nervous breakthrough, an eventual baptism into the Catholic Church in 1996. She knows that, quote, some mystery carried me, end quote, through all those years, and chronicles how several hard-to-believe coincidences that she experienced fueled her faith. Carr is unapologetic in her book and in numerous print and television interviews about her Christian conversion. Therapy helped in many ways, but the gospel started to, quote, rewrite the story of my life in the present, and I began to feel like somebody snatched out of the fire, salvaged, saved. Today, Mary Carr is the Peck Professor of Literature at Syracuse University. The title of the book, Lit, a Memoir, by Mary Carr, For films this week, I review Inglorious Bastards from the year 2009. Writer-director Quentin Tarantino's latest film combines all the components viewers have come to expect from him and sometimes fear. Long and unhurried scenes full of rich dialogue, graphic and gratuitous violence that takes you by surprise even when you know it's lurking in the shadows, sardonic humor, a sophisticated plot that requires you to pay attention, and, at the center of it all, a film about a film that's altered by a film clip on which the whole movie hinges. Set in 1941 France, a young girl named Shoshana escapes death by the Nazis and ends up in Paris as the owner of a movie theater. Colonel Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz, is the Nazi Jew finder who compares Jews to rats. His nemesis is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, Brad Pitt, 
a redneck from Tennessee who leads a band of American Jews of the title name to inflict terror through violence on the Nazis. People who, in Rain's worldview, lack any semblance of humanity. Horrendous violence meets horrific revenge. These two protagonists meet in an unlikely way in the final scene. Can you make a serious movie about the Holocaust that depends upon parody? That incorporates a good Holocaust against the deserving enemy? This film kept my attention for all 150 minutes, both times that I watched it. It yanked my emotions from one extreme to the other and reminded me that the medium of an excellent film need not depend on deciphering its exact message. With Tarantino, the film is sometimes an end in itself. Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino. And finally, for our Lenten series, we've posted a poem this week by one of my favorite poets, George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of this poem is called The Sinner. Lord, how I am all ague, when I seek what I have treasured in my memory. Since, if my soul make even with the weak, each seventh note by right is due to thee, I find there quarries of piled vanities, but shreds of holiness, that dare not venture to show their face since cross to thy decrees. There the circumference earth is, heaven the center. In so much dregs the quintessence is small. The spirit and good extract of my heart comes to about the many hundred part. Yet, Lord, restore thine image. Hear my call. And though my hard heart scarce to thee can groan, Remember that thou didst once write on stone. The title of the poem is The Sinner by George Herbert. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for the second Sunday in Lent, February 28, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.